If you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 3. I know I said last week that, or a couple weeks ago, that we'd be sticking in Matthew for the first half of 2023, and we will. Uh, but as we begin kind of a new year, I wanted to see if I can transition us out of 2022, which is what this right here is all about. We'll come to that uh, at the end of the sermon. Uh, and transition us into where we're going for 2023 and to see if I can make all of that make sense to you. And so to do that, I, I want to start in Revelation chapter 3. And I'm just going to go ahead and launch us into it by reading, starting in verse 14. This is Jesus speaking through John, writing to the church in Laodicea. Jesus says this, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because that you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I'd advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your sh and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may, be, you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. I've been thinking a lot in the last few weeks about growth and development. For those of you that don't know, maybe it's your first time here, uh, my, my wife and I recently found out she's pregnant, and this is incredible news for us uh, because for the last six and a half years, we've been dealing with infertility and some issues with that, and there's a whole crazy story behind that that happened last year. You can ask me later about that. But we're at this stage in life now where Haley's 14 weeks pregnant, and we have these books and these apps that you can look at and, like, tells you what the size of your baby is. Like, when I wake up almost, like, every morning, I'm, like, looking, like, what's, what's the size of the baby today? And I'm, like, hey, babe, the baby's the size of a baseball. And she's, like, it doesn't feel like a baseball pressing against my organs. It feels, you know, like this is what we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I've been thinking about development and how does this happen. And it's weird because in a lot of ways— I feel like I've gotten on this roller coaster that's going to continue for the next like 25 to 30 years where I just watch this baby grow and develop and, and change. And so much of that growth and development just kind of happens. Now, probably in Haley's opinion, it doesn't just happen right now because it happens and she's the one that has to sleep or feel sick or whatever that comes with it. For me, it just like happens. I just read a thing and it's like the baby's eyelids have developed, the baby's toes have developed, and it's just like happening by nature. And once this baby is born, whoever he grows up to be, and you, you heard what I said, whoever he grows up to be, we found that out, yeah, we're excited. Um, it's not like he has to put effort into growing up. He doesn't have to like train, he's not going to have to train to get taller. He's not going to be laying in his crib and thinking really, really hard, I really want my teeth to grow. I really want my teeth to grow and just like force his teeth to grow. He's not going to have to set up practice regiments to get his body into proper proportion with his head. You guys have seen babies like their heads are way out of proportion with normal bodies, right? It's not like he has to be intentional about that growth. It just happens. It's natural growth. 
But there are things that he will have to learn. There are going to be hard things that he's going to have to learn. Learning to walk. Learning to walk means he's probably going to fall. Not just one time. It's going to be a bunch of times. Learning to ride a bike, he'll have to wreck a few times. Learning to read and talk and do math, which if he takes anything like me, math's going to be really, really, really hard for him. So hopefully he does it. And, and all of those things demand intentionality. It demands work. And so that's got me thinking, what is it that determines whether growth comes naturally or it's limited to intentionality? Because there comes a point where that kind of natural growth in life, it feels like just tapers off. And it feels like we have to intentionally work at everything if we want to grow or get better at it. I think this is part of why, like, as adults, we long to go back and be children again. Do any of you guys feel this way? You have, like, a four-year-old grandchild or nephew or something, and they just know how to work an iPad better than you do. Like, they didn't work at it. They didn't read any manual. They didn't watch any YouTube videos, but they know how to work it better than you could ever hope to work that iPad. Because there comes a point in life where that natural development of learning just kind of tapers off, and you have to, like, work at anything you want to grow in. It demands intentionality. You want to, that, that kid metabolism wears off and you want to be healthy and walk around the block while eating a popsicle. That just doesn't really cut it anymore. So now you have to like go intentionally exercise 30 minutes a day and you have to watch what you eat. Oh, you want to learn another language? It doesn't just happen anymore. Now you got to go to class or download an app that pings your phone every three minutes because now you have to grow up doing some sort of study and learning it in that capacity, or you want to get better at something, well, your mom's not driving you to basketball practice anymore. Now it's on you. I think our problem comes as adults is that we think that the demand of intentional growth can somehow still come naturally. And so rather than seeking out growth through dedication and putting ourselves in patterns and routines, we, we decide that we'll just find something natural and that'll fix the problem. By the way, if you ever want to invent something and make a lot of money, figure out how to make that happen. Because that's what every single exercise machine out there is like, this will let you naturally you lose weight. It just comes natural. All you got to do is this 10 minutes a day. And because we desperately want things to come easy. We desperately want growth to come naturally. But in a lot of ways, it feels like the older we get, the less that happens the less growth comes as naturally as it used to. And I think in a way, this is the root of the problem with the church in Laodicea. So Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, most of the time we classify Revelation as this book that's kind of really far out there, and it's difficult to comprehend and, and interpret, and understandably so. Uh, but the first few chapters of Revelation is really just in step with the rest of the New Testament. It's short letters written to churches in the early Christian world. Most of the time it follows some sort of commendation, followed by a critique, followed by a command or an application. Um, the interesting thing here is this last letter has no commendation whatsoever. The church in Laodicea gets no, like, here's what you're doing good. It's very much, you don't get it. You're doing everything wrong. But in order to, I think, encapsulate and understand what's really happening, I have to do this thing I've called, uh, come to call nerding out with you. So I'm sorry for those of you that don't like history. You can tune it out. I'll let you know when to tune back in. Um, but for right now, give me five, ten minutes, and let me just nerd out with you over the ancient city of Laodicea. Are you ready? 
Okay, I got one ready, so that's good. That's all I need. That, that's enough for me. Four things, I think, are contextually important that helps us understand this passage. And I'll have these up here. They're not on your notes, so you can just, if you want to jot them down, you can. But this isn't like back of your bulletin notes. Number one, Laodicea was a crazy rich city. It was incredibly wealthy. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, and, and here's a quote from him, one of the most famous cities of Asia, Laodicea, was the same year overthrown by an earthquake and without any relief from us, that is without any relief from Rome, recovered itself and built itself back up by its own resources. So that's a lot of words. And all that really means is Laodicea, Laodicea was so wealthy that when an earthquake came in and knocked down all their buildings, they had just enough money that they could just rebuild them all. They didn't have to go to Rome and ask for help. They didn't have to go anywhere else. They within themselves were sufficient and rich and wealthy. And that's a historical quote. You can go look that up. And here's what this led to, Kelsey. I have some pictures, I think, to show. So here's kind of the, the Lycus River Valley. Laodicea, you can see, is in close proximity to two other cities. One's called Hierapolis and one's called Colossae. Um, I, I think maybe a good way of thinking about this is somewhat like Portales, Clovis, and Cannon Air Force Base, right? Uh, we're all distinct cities and communities, but there's absolutely some overlay in between the three of them that helps make this community into what it is. So these three different communities had different things to offer. Um, Hierapolis was one that was built and known for its hot springs. So actually, to this day, I have a picture of these hot springs. It's in modern-day Turkey. You can go there and see them. They're beautiful, by the way. I don't I think it would be amazing to go that. So that's that top picture of the Hierapolis hot springs. They were uh, known for healing properties and all this stuff. People would flock all around and go and hang out in these hot springs. And then Colossae, Colossae was known for cold springs, drinkable water that was clean, that you could go there and just drink straight from the spring. It was this wonderful place. And Laodicea didn't have either of those things, but guess what Laodicea did have? They had money. And what do you do with money? You solve your problems with it, right? So Laodicea invested all of this money into aqueducts. These pipes are things uh, archaeologists have dug up. Here, go back real fast, Kelsey. I'm sorry. That have dug up all of these pipes that come in from Hierapolis and come over from Colossae, pumping in the hot water. Now you can go to the next one. Me and Kelsey didn't practice first. They pumped in hot water from Hierapolis, and they piped in the cold water from Colossae. Why would they do this? Well, in their minds... These two communities have this. If we have the money to get both of, the, both of those, we become the better community. Let's pipe all this in. We have the money. We have the resources. So they did it. Here, here's the problem, though. By the time the water got from their starting locations to Laodicea, the water had either cooled off or warmed up to the point that it had become, and the quote someone wrote in a historian is, tepid and nauseous. So water became lukewarm, bacteria began growing in it, and the people drank of it, they threw up, vomited. Hold on to that piece of information. So, number one, Laodicea was really rich. Number two, they had water aqueducts. Number three, Laodicea was heavily influential city, uh, particularly within its fashion. It was known for its fashion. Archaeologists have again went, excavated this community. Uh, they found some buildings that were used to dye wool. And it has an inscription over this building that reads, The most august, which we still, we don't use august this way as much, but it's the Greek word for respective or impressive. So the most respected and impressive guild of wool washers. So we are the best at what we do. And they were known for their black sheep in the area. So they would create these jackets of black wool it's not like you could go on Amazon, right, and buy whatever color of clothing of whatever kind of clothing you wanted. So if someone was wearing a black wool coat, you might walk up and be like, wow, is that Laodicean? 
Oh, I like that Laodicean jacket you got there. Like, that was their culture. They defined fashion. Another thing, number four, is that they were known to have better than average or really good medicine or healthcare services. There's an ancient Roman physician writing at the time, Elias Galenaeus, or just Galen for short. Um, he wrote quite a bit about how this ancient medicine was practiced. And one of the things he wrote about was this ancient medicine uh, that was found called Phrygian powder that was crafted in Laodicea. It was a special medicine that you would put on your eyes. It was supposed to help with eyesight. So, nerd out over. You can tune back in if you're like, this is super boring. Four things that matter. Incredibly wealthy city. Problematic water supply due to the temperature. Famous black wool to make coats out of medicinally well-known throughout the local country, society, communities, stuff like that. With all of that in mind, let me just read this a little bit for you again. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I, I wish you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I'd advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is taking everything this community thinks it has going for it, everything they think makes them better than everyone else, and he's saying, actually, it's nowhere near how you see it. And he starts to flip everything upside down on itself. You think you're rich, but I'm, I'm telling you, you're poor. You think you're well-dressed, but I'm telling you, you're naked. You think you have the medicine to see, but I'm telling you, you're blind. See, I think a lot of times when we read this passage, we start at that first part about the hot or cold, and we kind of create this idea of a spectrum, that it's like a spectrum of zeal. Either you're cold and you're against who Jesus is and what he stands for, or you're hot and you're on fire for Jesus, and Jesus would rather you be one of those two extremes and not ride the fence and not be indifferent. And that's how it's been taught to me in a lot of ways. And that could be there. But I'm not sure that's the exact intended interpretation given the historical context. Now, we still land at the same premise that Jesus' problem is that the church was indifferent. But given the context, hot water would have been great if it made it down from Hierapolis and stayed hot. Cold water would have been great if it made it from Colossae and remained cold. So the problem is not a problem of zeal. It's a problem of purpose. What Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, I believe, is, hey, you don't have the purpose you need to have. Instead of having purpose, you're just sitting there. And what happens to the water that just sits? It makes people sick. Church in Laodicea, this is what you're like. Jesus' problem with the church is that they're passive. They've grown comfortable, and that comfort has caused them to lose their purpose. There is no intent, no investment into this thing they say they believe. This is exactly what Jesus says the problem is. Hey, you think you're rich, wealthy, and successful, but actually you're wretched, miserable, poor. Jesus seems to think that one of the most dangerous places for a church to be is comfortable apathy. That one of the most dangerous places for a church to be is not in a foreign country where Christianity is illegal. It's not in anything like that. The most dangerous place is your own comfortable apathy. That nothing will ruin a church as quickly as comfort and not caring. 
nothing will ruin a church as quickly as indifference. It's kind of ironic because I know I just came in and showed you how much money we've given, and that's so cool. I want to celebrate that. I always want to celebrate that. But I also want to be very clear to say the thing that will make this church successful is not that we have enough money. It's not that we have enough resources. It's not that we have enough traditions or enough events so that we never need to press beyond our comfort. A church that sits content to be as we are, content to do as we've always done, tying our godliness to an external set of practices will always find itself far from God, lukewarm in ruin because it is not how God intended church to be. So Jesus flips it all upside down. And in doing so, he attacks the cultural norms that caused this church to falter. You think you're wealthy based on your money? You are poor. The Greek word poor is the word patakas, which literally is a crouched over beggar cowering before those who have more than him. That, that's, the, that's the word that they would call beggars walking down the street, patakas. And so imagine you're writing this to the most wealthy place in the world and you're saying that's who you really are. That's what you look like. You, you think you've got all the answers to sight and health, you're, you're blind. You, you think you invented the epitome of fashion? You're naked. So what's Jesus' response to this church? How does Jesus approach a church that is so encapsulated and, and just taken by what they believe to be true and is just wrong with it? I think a lot of times we read this, we end at verse 16. We read it and we say, because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of, your, out of my mouth. And we, we take that and we say, hey, being an indifferent church, it makes Jesus sick. You don't want to make Jesus sick, do you? And we just like leave it at that. And don't get me wrong, that's there. But is that how the passage ends? No, don't put a period where there's not a period. Keep, keep going with where the passage continues on from that. What is Jesus' response to a Luke? warm church. Verse 19, see as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20, see I stand at the door and knock. Jesus's response to a lukewarm church is not to vomit them up, it's to draw near to them. Jesus's response is to draw near to the lukewarm church. This is the most undeserving church of the seven. And it's the, only it's the only church where Jesus has nothing good to say about it. But it's the church where Jesus declares the kindest of feelings. Hey, to those I love, that's you, Laodicea. Jesus' desire is not to throw them up or spit them out. His response, his desire is to draw near to them, to give them what they need. This is verse 18. So I advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire. You think your gold matters, but come to trust mine that you may be rich. White clothes. You think you have the fashion, but I'm the only one that can really clothe you and cover your shamefulness. And ointment to spread on your eyes that you may see. You think you can see, but you have to come to me if you want to see the world how it actually is. Jesus' desire is to draw near to this church, to demonstrate his love to them as he offers them himself. That's the whole point. I stand at the door and knock. Let me in to come and eat with you. Jesus' response to a lukewarm church is not, you make me sick. His response to a lukewarm church is, yeah, I'm right here. Here I am. I'm ready when you are. 
But for the church to hear that knocking, for the church to understand that need, they have to begin by giving up themselves. They have to begin by giving up their ways, their norms, their customs. They have to give up the things that the culture around them says is good, and none of that happens passively. So if I could take all of this and just boil it down into kind of one single point, here's what I want to point out to you. It's this, growth demands intentionality. Spiritual growth, godly growth demands intentionality. Growing to be more like Jesus demands intentionality. Growing in your faith demands intentionality. Growing in your Christ walk demands intentionality. We want so bad for stuff like this to come naturally. If I just go to church, if I just read my Bible, if I just say the right prayers, then it'll come naturally and I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And we miss it. Because the church in Laodicea, Jesus has written this letter to be read aloud where? In the church in Laodicea. This is being read to the people present in the church, meaning they're doing the motions. They're in the presence of the church. They're doing the things they're supposed to be doing. And Jesus is saying, but you still don't get it. Because it's not about those motions. It's about my presence. Growth demands intentionality, meaning a couple of things here. We'll go through these fast. Number one, it doesn't happen accidentally. Your spiritual growth will not happen accidentally. Welcome to 2023. There are plenty of the things over the course of this year that will happen. Some of them will be things that you did not plan for, that you did not anticipate. But I promise you, without intentionality, you will not wake up next December and think, I'm so much much more like Jesus now. I just happened by accident. I can't believe it. I'm so much more like Jesus. It's not going to happen. Now, the opposite will happen. You can wake up and say, I accidentally found myself trapped in sin and indifference. I accidentally grew further away from Jesus, not closer to him. Growing to be more like Jesus does not happen by accident. The church in Laodicea was never just going to happen back into spiritual growth. Something intentional had to happen within them, which demanded Jesus' presence inside the church with them. Number two. Growth demands intentionality, meaning it doesn't happen passively. Growing in Jesus doesn't just happen by upholding all the passive traditions like going to church and praying and reading your Bible. Now, don't hear me saying, you don't have to worry. You don't have to do any of that stuff. But what I'm saying is you can read your Bible every day and not grow closer to Jesus. You can come to church every Sunday and not grow closer to Jesus. You can pray and not grow closer to Jesus because this thing we call life with Christ is not a checklist of things to be crossed off. All right, read my Bible today. Got to love me more now, God. Ha ha, I tricked you. It's a lifestyle. It's a transformation. It's the presence of Christ within us. Remember, this had to be read aloud inside the church to people attending that church. It's written to believers And Jesus seems to believe the solution is not more church, not more attendance, not more passive practices. It's coming back to him and intentionally letting him in. And intentional growth means that it cannot happen resourcefully. And here's what I mean by that. A successful church, a growing church will not happen because they met budget. Don't get me wrong. I love, we met budget again. I'm so thankful that we met. It sure takes a lot of stress off of our finance team and how to manage stuff. Thank you again for that. But just so you know, the success of First Baptist does not happen because we meet budget. 
Growth doesn't happen because they sent money or they saw growth in the business model. Growth doesn't happen because we meet in a really pretty church with stained glass windows. Growth doesn't happen because it has a good name. A church has a good name in the community. Growth can only happen when we are intentionally opening our lives back to Jesus to say, we need you to rule and reign. We need you with us, your presence here Growth only comes by intentionality. Well, intentionally doing what? I, th I think of all the ways that we could define that, one of the best and most simple yet profound ways is three things. Being with Jesus, being like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. If you want to see spiritual growth, if you want to see spiritual growth, you need to intentionally be with Jesus. But that's going to include things like reading your Bible. That's going to include things like praying. That's also going to include things like starting your day and saying, Jesus, I have a crazy busy day and I can't do it without you. I just need to spend some time with you. Intentionally be with Jesus. And the next, as you are with him more and more, as you see who he was and what he did, as you pray and experience his presence within you, you begin to become more like him. You think the way Jesus thinks. You talk the way Jesus talks. You love the way Jesus loves. And once you start doing that, then you can start doing what Jesus did. And by the way, when I say doing what Jesus did, I don't mean just like this fine sky Christianity, living as a good American citizen. I mean literally doing the things Jesus did, loving the types of people Jesus loved, giving the way Jesus gave, serving the way Jesus served, because this is what Jesus' intention was to his disciples. Hey, when I go, I'm sending you my same spirit so that you may do even greater works than these. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Whatever greater means, be it quality or quantity, it doesn't mean less. It can't mean less. This is where Jesus wants us to intentionally be as a church. We really tried to do that over 2022. For those of you who weren't here, all throughout 2022, what we've done is, is we've kind of had this idea where all five of these things represent core values. So the green is life-giving, red is gospel-rooted, white is spirit-filled, blue is community, and orange is belong. And the idea is we as a church want to just be intentionally focused. We want to be a life-giving church. And so what I've invited you to do all year long is anytime you have an experience where this church was either life-giving to you or you got the chance to be life-giving to somebody, that you would take one of these marbles and you would just drop it in the container. Every time that you found yourself just rooted in the gospel, more and more assured of the reality of Christ's love and sacrifice poured out for you on the cross, then you would move a red marble. Every time that you just felt the Spirit helped you to do something you otherwise would have never had tried to do, you would move that. Anytime you felt that you were in this community and this was home for you, anytime that you either invited someone else to belong or felt someone helped make you belong, and all of this was was just us trying to be intentional. And really, it's not just us trying to be intentional in these separate things, because each one of these could all be funneled into one, and that's the phrase, like Jesus. But all of these make us like Jesus, because Jesus was life-giving. They make us like Jesus, because Jesus was gospel-rooted. They make us like Jesus, because Jesus was spirit-filled. They make us like Jesus, because Jesus lived in community. They make us like Jesus, because Jesus wanted everyone to come belong, whether it was a Samaritan, a woman, Jew, Greek, whoever. So what are we going to do in 2023? We just want to be intentionally like Jesus. So we want to take all of these things that we've been doing separately 
I know that's a horrible noise, right? And we want to make it more and more like Jesus. We want to see First Baptist Church be a place where when people see us, when they see our presence in the community, what they really see is not our money or our success or our fame because none of that matters and it doesn't make us who we are. We want them to see Jesus. Because ultimately, they're not even all going to fit in here. Because ultimately, the only one that can make Portalis, that can make Clovis, that can make the Air Force Base. If you guys find a bigger container, let me know. We'll fix that. The way it's supposed to be is Jesus. We can't do it. This building cannot do it. Our knowledge, our resources, our expertise, we can't do it. We cannot save ourselves. It must be our Savior, Jesus. So all throughout this next year, we're not going to move marbles. I might keep this kind of around so you can see it and have it as a reminder. We're not going to move marbles. We're not going to do anything tracking like that. We're just going to walk through Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. And every week, to the point that's probably going to be annoying, and I'm sorry for that. But every week, I'm going to ask the question, what does this mean in living intentionally like Jesus? What does it mean to be more and more intentionally like Jesus? But to get there, we have to start here. The world is going to try everything it can to tell you that growth can come easy and naturally. The same way, whatever our baby's going to be named, we don't know yet. The same way he's just going to grow teeth and grow taller. You can just grow in your faith. It just happens. You don't have to worry about it. That you can live passive, unintentional lives and you can still have wealth and entertainment and distraction and style and intelligence and health. But you cannot live a passive, unintentional life and end up more like your Savior. It will not happen. You will always end up lukewarm. Passion washed away. Purpose eroded by mere motions and traditions. And that is not what Jesus made you for. That is not what Jesus made us for. No, God created us in his image to know his love, to live the way he designed this world to be lived. And when we ruined it because of our sin, he came to rescue us. And in rescuing us, what he offers us is not just access to heaven. That's there. That's promised. That's guaranteed. That's amazing. But it's not just about getting you into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. It's changing the way you see the world here and now. It's changing the way you interact with your neighbors here and now. It's changing the way you see politics here and now. It changes everything as we begin to live and act more like Jesus. So if you don't know that change, if you've never been transformed by this gospel, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, I'm telling you there is no better way to start 2023. Come talk to me. I would love to explain to you what it means to put your faith in this to declare Jesus as the king of your life. And if you do know that, then all this next year, we're gonna continually ask the question, what does it mean to be intentionally more like Jesus? Because that's what we wanna see, a church intentionally like its savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love demonstrated to us. And God, when we're distracted by our own comfort and apathy, when we would look around and say, I don't need anything, would you remind us 
that while that comfort's not bad or sinful in itself, it can easily dissuade and distract us from the purpose you've given. So God, I pray that in 2023, we would not seek comfort. We would not seek apathy. We would not seek indifference. God, in 2023, we would seek you, that you would make First Baptist Portales a church that is intentionally like Jesus. And God, help us to over and over again be like you, to be with you, to be like you, and to do what you did. Thank you for all of that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.